Patagonia looks back on 50 years of combining merchandising with environmental awareness. What has it learned? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is a Supply Chain Brain podcast. Ten years ago, Patagonia, the big maker of clothing and gear for outdoor recreation, published a book detailing its 40 years of doing business. Now it's back with a review of the last 50 years, and a lot has changed over the past decade. On this episode, we speak with Vincent Stanley, Patagonia's director of philosophy, who tells how more recent events have caused the company to transform its business model and double down on a commitment to environmental responsibility. A business that was originally meant to be an easy-to-milk cash cow, those are its own words in the new book about Patagonia's first 50 years, became something quite different, embracing a whole new ownership model and transforming itself into a non-profit trust. But it's still a business with customers to serve and a supply chain that accounts for an overwhelming portion of its total environmental impact. And tough as it might seem to balance those priorities, Patagonia believes that other companies can learn from its example. Here's my conversation with Vincent Stanley. Vincent Stanley, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So the new book, publication date of September 12th, The Future of the Responsible Company, What We've Learned from Patagonia's First 50 Years. Now, 10 years ago, you issued a book called What We've Learned from Patagonia's First 40 Years. What has changed? Well, a lot has changed in the world. First of all, the environmental crisis that we were talking about in 2011 and 2012 has uh, become much more acute. And the social crisis that's attended on that has also become more acute. We've had COVID. You have a supply chain broadcast. You know what COVID did to all of the supply chain relationships. And we've changed in other ways, too. We've simplified our mission statement, which was once build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, use business to inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. As that crisis worsened and as things became more urgent, we simplified that to we're in business to save our home planet. That was Evolve's idea, and I think that the impetus behind that is that all of the work that we do in business, and I think all of the work that governments do in policy and that NGOs do, we really have to concentrate, we really have to recognize, own up to our responsibilities to answer the needs of this crisis however we can in terms of the businesses we run, the products we make, the services we offer. So that we should be offering things that create the kind of leverage that allows society to deal with these problems and at the same time be making products in the right way, high quality mm -hmm. with environmental and social concerns. The last yeah. point I would add is a big change for us is that we changed our ownership model last year from being a family-owned business to being a company that is owned by a couple of nonprofit trusts with all 
profits that don't go into reinvestment or don't go into employee bonuses now being uh, devoted to environmental causes. Indeed, you now say that Earth is our only shareholder, correct? That's right. Also in 2012, you became what's known as a California Benefit Corporation. Could you explain what that is? Yeah, it started among small businesses, but it has expanded in the last few years to include several multinationals. Businesses that express a specific set of values that they write into their articles of incorporation, the business charter, and submit to an evaluation every two to three years that's very detailed on how the company is performing against its stated values and how it performs in the interests of its stakeholders. That includes the shareholders, of course, but also includes the welfare of the employees, of customers, of the communities we operate in, and of nature itself, the natural world. I'm wondering, though, the progress that Patagonia has made to these realizations and to this sense of urgency. In this new book, you say, in the beginning, Patagonia was meant to be, quote, an easy-to-milk cash cow, not yeah. a risk-taking, environment-obsessed, navel-gazing company. What changed there? You know, we started out as a mountain climbing equipment company. And when you make mountain climbing equipment, you don't make good, better, best. Your customers are trusting their lives to the quality of your gear. And when we got into the clothing business, we essentially wanted to support the climbing business because we had a big market share. We had a great reputation, but we had a very, very small business because the world of customers for climbing was very small then. So the idea of Patagonia was essentially to create a business where we wouldn't get our hands dirty and we would make some profit at the end of the year to support the climbing business. And I think the habits that we established as a climbing equipment company died hard. Sort of get into the clothing business and say, okay, we're going to make less than high quality gear. And we ended up making technical gear for the outdoors for the most demanding customers in the most difficult conditions. So we sort of turned ourselves on our head. What was intended to be a very simple, straightforward business of the 1970s and 80s turned out to be the long-running experiment that has become Patagonia. Patagonia has been remarkably candid about its journey all that time. The things it did that benefited and maybe some of the mistakes or lessons learned. What are some of the hard lessons that Patagonia learned along the way, do you think? It's hard to answer that question. There are sort of categories of questions that we've dealt with. And the biggest one, I think, is that we understand that we're not operating in a vacuum. Something like 80 to 90% of our environmental impact is in the supply chain. It's in the fabrications that we use and the materials and processes used to develop them. So we have to work very closely with our suppliers. When we're working on environmental issues, we're working very closely with policymakers and we're working very closely with NGOs. Initially, some of the moves we made, like switching to organic cotton, we thought, that's very simple. We'll just buy from the farmers. Well, it turned out to be a much more complicated issue when we switched to organic cotton because when we bought from cotton from farmers, we displaced ourselves from the global supply chain, including the spinners that turned the basic cotton into a fabric, and we separated ourselves from the mills. So understanding how we are interrelated to the larger business world was something that we've learned repeatedly over and over again, and we've gotten a lot better at it. One of the interesting things in this new book 
is the revelation, at least a revelation to people like myself who didn't know this in the past, is that regular cotton is not a green product. I mean, we think of it as a natural product, and yet non-organic cotton has all kinds of elements to it, from bad smells to types of dangerous chemicals and things. I mean, that was quite an eye-opener to read that in the book. Was that a lesson learned along the way, too? It was. It was an eye-opener for us. And I think the challenge for us was, what do we do? If we learn that cotton is, in some ways, one of the most environmentally harmful natural products, uh, farm products, do you then accept that and say, okay, everybody else is facing the same problem? Or is there something we can do? Can we pursue an alternative? So we did. And we switched to organic with some of the complications I just mentioned to you. It wasn't a simple mm -hmm. process. It's interesting to me for all businesses, I think, to supplies, that the more you place constraints on yourself, if you say, okay, we don't want to do this, we do not want to be responsible for this kind of action, so we're going to pursue an alternative. When you accept those kinds of constraints, you force yourself to rethink your business and to make your practices not just more efficient, but also more resilient and to make big changes in the business that can result in product innovations that the customers respond to. So in a sense, it's been a good business move for us over the past 30 years to look at these big issues and say, okay, what can we do? Sometimes we can't do something, but in a lot of cases, we've made changes to the way we buy and the way we operate. Yeah, another thing you've been candid about is the way you had to adjust your sourcing strategies. You talk about how at one point you discovered or realized you had too many factories. Yeah. You cut down the number, you changed that. I mean, that's not a decision or a realization that a lot of companies would care to undertake, let alone talk about it. Yeah, I think what we discovered is that because of the kind of work we were doing, we did need to work closely with associates. So if you're dealing with a great number of factories with whom you have transactional relationships, you just sort of place the orders and take them. You can't undertake the work to make the changes or make the improvements that we wanted to make. So when we consolidated, again, we improved those relationships. We came up with innovations that otherwise we wouldn't have come up with. And you also said it just isn't realistic to make everything in the United States, that you are going to continue to have to rely on offshore manufacturing. That being the case, and especially during the COVID lockdowns, how then and how now do you ensure that overseas workers are being paid fairly and treated fairly when they make your products? It's a little easier in the assembly factories than it is in the mills. So we started a program about 10 years ago called Fair Trade Certified labor, uh, working with Fair Trade USA. And the way that works is that the workers are actually paid, we pay into an escrow account a bonus for everyone in a particular assembly factory, whether they're working on our goods or not. And the workers elect representatives to determine how that bonus is going to be paid, whether it's in cash or in one instance, the the workers voted to buy bicycles so they could get home to their families more quickly at the end of the day. That gives the workers a sense of agency. And what we found is we started with nine yoga styles in 2014, and we've expanded that to more than 80% of the line is made under those terms. Uh, that's in addition to factory audits 
and all kinds of things that we do to ensure that the workers are paid uh, legally and are working in safe conditions. But there are never any guarantees. The apparel business is a tough business, and we're, we're operating at the top end of it, I think, in terms of how the workers are treated. But it's, a, it's an ongoing challenge. What the world needs to do is to pay its apparel workers a living wage, and we're working on that as well as uh, the fair trade program. Well, that's an interesting calculation because what constitutes a living wage could vary from country to country. It How does. do you determine what that is? Do you do that with the help of economists, NGOs? Do you make those determinations yourself on a country-to-country basis? Where do you come up with what you consider to be a living wage in each country in which you produce? There are indexes, and I'm not sure which one we use, but the same questions arise from state to state or from metro area to metro area within the U.S. It's hard to determine, but the I think overall, the concept itself is really important because it acknowledges that people have a right to a living wage, which was not really acknowledged before this movement started. Would you say that you have total visibility of your supply chain to the extent that you would be able to detect if subcontractors kind of came into the picture that you may not otherwise know about? Do you know where everything is being produced and how the workers are being treated at every location? No, I don't think we can guarantee that, that there's absolutely nothing going wrong in the system. We're very diligent about that. Again, we work with a limited number of factories. We work very closely. We do inspections, audits, etc. But we would never claim that we have 100% visibility 24-7 into what the conditions are. I'd like to emphasize a little bit, 97% of all apparel in the United States is imported. So we're not talking about an individual decision by Patagonia to import clothing from other places. What happened in the Mm -hmm. 90s is we essentially put an end to the textile industry in the U.S. with changes in the trade laws. So what we're dealing with is these are the conditions in the world right now, and we're trying to make the absolute best of them. Yeah, indeed, in your book, you actually name a number of U.S. domestic apparel producers that you had been relying on that closed down now, gone out of business. Yeah. You say you just don't have access to that type of ability. But, of course, the apparel industry is one of the worst in terms of trying to understand where illegal subcontractors are being used. So that must be something that you have to be eternally vigilant about. Absolutely. Okay, so Earth is now our only shareholder. That makes you a very special kind of company. Most other companies have actual shareholders, human shareholders, that demand a certain return on their investment. Let's face it. To what extent can your example be translated into action by other companies, given the fact that you have this special status where you don't actually answer to the same kind of shareholders that most businesses do? Actually, we continue to operate the business on the same principle. If you don't follow responsible practices, you can't pay your bills, you can't pay your employees. So we're not absent of the constraints that any business would have. Mm -hmm. There is a tradition in Europe of companies being owned by nonprofit corporations or by nonprofits. And this includes Rolex, it includes Carlsberg, it includes Novo Nordisk. The idea is that the company is owned by a separate entity that has a a public purpose to it. That's certainly the idea for us. But it doesn't mean that we operate the business in a very different way. It doesn't mean that we're cavalier about our financial practices. 
It doesn't mean that the profits that aren't reinvested in the company or are not distributed as bonuses to employees are rather than go to specific shareholders, goes to environmental causes. Okay, but when you switched to organic cotton, you lost money on that for a while. If you'd been owned by a hedge fund or some other type of private equity, do you think you would have been able to make that commitment up front and say, this is going to, in the long run, be beneficial, but right now it's going to cost us? No, but we were, I think a, a lot of privately held companies could make a similar decision. And, and it's mm -hmm. interesting, if I look back at some of the decisions that we've made that at the time looked like risks to us, if we had viewed them as investments, <laughs> we might have been more relaxed about it. Every business takes when, when you view an action as an investment, you're taking an acceptable risk. So, uh, I mean, he was lying. He said it several times that every time he does the right thing, he's made money. What might seem to a hedge fund or to an advocate of Milton Friedman as a distraction from the bottom line can look like, for us, it looks like a, a long-term effort in the, or investment in the business that pays off rather than a simple short-term gain. Well, it pays off in terms of saving the earth, we hope. I mean, that's a much yeah. larger goal than simply turning a profit every quarter. But it is good business also? Yeah, if, if you can develop products that you otherwise would not have made, and if you change the game with your customers, that tends to be good business. Okay, but let me ask you about changing the game with customers. What do you think, bottom line, are the real economics of producing environmentally responsible and sustainable products? Are we all willing to pay the price? Let's admit that there is a price that you can't, you're going to pay your workers a fair wage. The product's going to cost more. That's simply pure economics. Are we all willing to step up and accept that in the long run? The question is, are we all? Uh, no. Yeah. But I think a lot <laughs> of us will. And the question is whether that paves the way to more responsible behavior on the part of the larger market. I think there's been a kind of almost a cynical agreement that we've underpaid non-professional people in the United States and also in, in, in other countries, but particularly here, and compensated with cheap food and goods. Clothing is less expensive now than it was in the 1970s if you look at the inflation rate. And a lot of that has come on the backs of workers and it has come back on the backs of nature. And if we're facing up to the problems that we have now, which are not small and they are chronic and they are urgent, I think we have to look very seriously at the responsibility of companies who make things to make things in a way that they might be more expensive, but may also produce a greater result. The other thing for us that's interesting is expanding our secondary market, warmware. If you make high-quality clothes that are designed, many of them will last for 10 or 15 years. I think it's really important to create a platform to make those clothes available to people who might not have the cash when they're buying a really good rain jacket the first time around, but they can't afford something that's going to have many years of life left in it. Yeah, but here again, you're talking about the very opposite of so-called fast fashion. Absolutely. Where we buy something, yeah. next season, we throw away what we bought last season and buy something new. That's yeah, not the Patagonia philosophy, I assume. No, it's not. And we're not even talking about with fast fashion. We're not talking next season. We're talking next week. The yeah. average fast fashion item is worn about four or five times and then thrown away. And that's just kind of a cultural. It's not really a matter of economics.
That's something that I think particularly young people, they want to wear something brand new, and this has been sold to them. But this is not, we've never had a a commercial culture like this before, and I, I hope it doesn't last too much longer. So it sounds like you're saying that despite some of the unique aspects of the Patagonia ownership model, that you feel that other companies that are more conventional in their ownership structure and their investment structure can follow your lead. Indeed, you might be suggesting that they have to. Is that, in fact, what you're saying? I think they should. As you you say, you you weren't aware that conventionally produced cotton could be so harmful. As things become more known, we have policymakers coming in. We have uh, public opinion coming in. Public opinion is much quicker to respond than it was before the Internet. So, yes, I do think that other companies can follow suit. I think there's a big movement, uh, the B Corp movement that we mentioned earlier in the the talk. I think there are entrepreneurs, young people in business, who really don't want to leave their values at home when they go off to work, and they want to build businesses in line with those values. Vincent, since you call yourself Director of Philosophy, let me torture you with one final (laughs) broader question. (laughs) I'm just wondering if in the end, if we're going to save the earth, maybe it requires a complete rethinking of the economic model based on constant growth, a total new paradigm of how business is done in the world. I don't know. What do you think? I think we need a lot of different things. We need a lot of activities at different scales. I think one of the things that's happened with globalization is we've developed these incredibly sophisticated networks but we've lost a sense of locality, a sense of place. We've lost the capacity to act on a small replicable scale, not necessarily expandable scale. I think we need everything. I mean, I think we need large scale concerted activities. And I think we need a lot more experimentation, a lot more small business that's making things that large businesses wouldn't do because it wouldn't be worth their time. So I don't think there's one thing. For for those who would attack capitalism, it's not like uh, capture the radio station and take over the newspaper (laughs) in 1934 (laughs) and you have your revolution. The commercial life is embedded into every part of our day. So the question is, how do you expand the sort of non-commercial sensibility to increase the capacity for people to act according to their values at the same time that they're meeting their needs. Once again, the book is called The Future of the Responsible Company, What We've Learned from Patagonia's First 50 Years. Vincent Stanley, Director of Philosophy, thank you so much for talking to me about the Patagonia journey and how that might actually serve as a lesson for other companies to follow. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Vincent Stanley of Patagonia, talking about the company's first 50 years. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read our Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. And also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well. And see you next time.